You're listening to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM uh, in Irvine, FM in Irvine. Uh, the opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regions of University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, Dylan? Oh, hi. Uh, I'll put you on. Uh, with us on the air is Dylan um, Dylan Rodriguez, who's a, <laughs> who's a uh, professor of ethnic studies at uh, UC Riverside. And he's going to talk about uh, what he considers uh, the the uh, the uh, consequences of uh, or the the impact of uh, Obama, if there's any, uh, on anti-racism struggles. Uh, uh, do you think that people are wrong to think that it's a great thing to have Obama elected? Uh, hi. Can you hear? Let's see. I'll get you. Yeah, sorry, Dylan. Yeah. yeah, you're in here now. You're okay. Uh, yeah, do you think it's wrong to for people to have been excited about election of uh, Barack um, of uh, Obama? There's, there's, I think, two ways to respond to the question. At the one hand, on the one hand, it's, it's neither wrong nor right. I mean, it, it, it's something that happened. Uh, folks were moved. They. Uh, were were transformed in a lot of ways. I saw it all around me. I saw it on television. Um, who could forget the image of a rock solid still Jesse Jackson holding an American flag, weeping? Who could forget the image of Oprah Winfrey hugging up on uh, the white folks next to her, crying at the apparent fulfillment of the American civil rights dream? So, on the one hand, I think that what we have to understand descriptively is that excitement happened, um, and and for a lot of folks, it was much deeper than excitement. It was uh, it was a sense of humanization in a real sense. And it was a nationalist humanization. It was a sense of being humanized within the American national dream. Now, having said that, uh, as a matter of political uh, judgment and a political critique, we can say that it might be not only wrong but politically harmful to have been so radically excited about the election of someone like Barack Obama to the office of the President of the United States. And it has much more to do, as far as I'm concerned, with the effect that it has on the potentials of a transformative, progressive, and radical anti-racist politics, anti-imperialist politics, than it does on what it is that the Obama administration will do. As, as I wrote in the article that, uh, I, that I circulated, really just the political pe- friends and pe- people I've done political work with, and it's kind of just made the rounds of the Internet now. Uh, what, what what concerns me the most is how it is that the excitement and the so-called hope that's invested in Obama as a political symbol is actually already working to discipline and absorb elements of the so-called American left into what is really uh, at best a liberal politics, and and at worst at worst it's an investment in a reinvigoration of the of the similar sort of centrist politics that the Clinton administration embodied. And, and I don't really feel like I need to go on and on at length about that because we're already seeing it happen with the appointments that Obama is making to his cabinet, to his uh, supporting, uh, to his so-called transition team, and then the rumors of those who he's going to appoint to become the Secretary of State, Treasury Secretary, and so forth. Although, so, although on uh, 60 Minutes, uh, he did say he was going to close uh, Guantanamo. Yes, and you know, this is the thing that uh, is so dangerous about what it is that Obama does. Guantanamo has been, the Guantanamo Bay Prison, for 
you know, in case folks have had their, their heads buried for the last two years. Guantanamo Bay Prison has been the site of much moral outrage among the liberal to radical left in the United States because it, in many ways, symbolizes uh, the extremities of, US, of the U.S. prison project, the U.S. Prison, global prison regime, in the sense that this is the place where people are, are, are ostensibly uh, intens- intensively tortured, intensively isolated, uh, and essentially locked away for the foreseeable future under the guise of being enemy combatants and so forth. So, uh, on the one hand, who could dispute that it's a decent thing to do to shut down Guantanamo Bay? What is dangerous about getting excited about the shutdown of Guantanamo Bay is that Barack Obama and the administration that surrounds him, and then the consensus that he has won, is in no way opposed to sustaining the war on terror. There's no way in which he's opposed to that. What this becomes, then, is a moral story. It's a story in which the United States stops torturing but continues waging war. It's a story in which the United States stops abusing and making spectacle of itself and being an immoral imperial power and becomes a more uh, caring, massaging liberal liberal imperial power, but no less deadly. So it's in that sense that uh, I really have very little sense of excitement about the shutdown of Guantanamo Bay, because at the same time that that's happening, you also have the expansion of a U.S. global prison regime, which is domestic and uh, located all around the world. And what, what Obama represents as a liberal morality is really the sense that U.S. empire can kind of curb its most extreme expressions of racist and uh, you know, uh, unethical violence, corrupt violence, and that it can become a more ethical dominant power in the, in the, in the, in the globe, that it can kill people more effectively, slowly and more nicely. So, so that's what bothers me about that. Yeah, you've been active in a uh, uh, movement called Critical Resistance, and you're the author of Forced Passages, Imprisoned Radical Intellectuals and the U.S. Prison Regime from University of Minnesota Press, and you're working on a forthcoming uh, book called Suspended Acopolis, Acop, Acop, uh, Apocalypse, that's right. uh, White Supremacy, Genocide, and the Filipino Condition. Yes. Uh, so do you see that the fact that he's black... Does that uh, is that akin to people getting excited about uh, women being a uh, prime minister when uh, Margaret Thatcher was uh, made the Iron Lady of Britain? It's 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 not quite akin to that, and I'll tell you why. It's because I don't think that many people, um, fem- liberal feminists included, had that many illusions about what it, kind of politics Margaret Thatcher represented when she rose to office, or for that matter, what Madeleine Albright represented when she became uh, Secretary of State, became one of the most powerful people in the world as well. I mean, I think that there was at the most superficial level of a liberal, level, level of a liberal, uh, really a, a liberal racist white feminist politics, uh, a kind of excitement around that. But I think that by and large, people in the global left and the U.S. left were deeply critical of both of those figures. I don't see that same intensity of critique around Obama's candidacy, first of all, that is, Barack Obama before he became president. And, and even now, the critiques of Obama are, are just emerging, but they're rather tepid. I think that, that the critiques of someone like Obama must be intensified. They must be radicalized. The, 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 the sense in which there is this concession to the fulfillment of a liberal civil rights dream in the United States, that Obama is now the, the precipice of a multiculturalist uh, you know, nationalism, you know, this notion that the United States is becoming a place that is somehow friendly and welcome, uh, and, and, and a place that in which, in which all people can be human, no matter how dark or poor you are, no matter how uh, you know, undocumented you might be, no matter how imprisoned you might be, is profoundly cynical in its own way. I mean, I've, I've been accused of being cynical, but I think that is the height of cynicism, when people are so willing to concede a political ethics that is fundamental, that is a political ethics which is invested in people's liberation, freedom, and protection from 
state violence, racist state violence. That that that's that's the thing that I feel we cannot excuse. And, and by the way, Dan, thanks for plugging thanks for plugging my two books. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's important to have uh, critical voices out there, and um, I guess that. You know, people really forget that uh, the U.S. is remains an imperialist power, and it's going to wage war and it's going to repress people at home. Uh, but don't you think that the the fact that Obama went through uh, his uh, younger days as a community organizer wouldn't that uh, influence the way he he uh, he operates? Yeah, absolutely, it does, and and I don't think it necessarily affects it in in the ways that people want it to affect him. In, in other words, this this notion of Obama's autobiography as a community or uh, of Obama's biography as a community organizer somehow being grounded in him being engaged in in a in a anything approaching a radical politics is really deeply misled. And and let me let me recommend some reading to folks. There's an anthology that came out about a year or two ago called "The Revolution Will Not Be Funded," and this was the product of this major conference put together by Insight, the radical um, anti-violence women of color organization. And what, what this book addressed is exactly what it is that produced Barack Obama. That is this thing that's emerged since the late 1970s called the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, now, what Obama was doing in Chicago as, community, as a community organizer was a direct outcome of uh, the, the work of, of, of Saul Alinsky. And, and what, what, that, what that engaged is this kind of nonprofit-based, community organization-based organizing, which really was mitigating against the kind of grassroots radicalism that the different liberation movements were engaged with uh, throughout the late 1960s and er- into the early 1970s. Uh, so, so what the nonprofit uh, apparatus has, has ended up doing is producing uh, a kind of groundswell of community organizations that are, are willing to internally curb what it is that they do. They internally discipline what it is that they do. The extent to which they're willing to organize communities is oftentimes based on the most pragmatic assessments of what is uh, winnable in the policy realm or in the elected uh, in the electoral political realm. And and not only that, the accountabilities of the nonprofit industrial complex are really not to communities. It's to foundations, and ultimately it's even to the state because they have to maintain nonprofit status. So they have to have basic accountability to the IRS. Um, and they have to take a explicitly nonpartisan stand on so many issues. So a lot of organizations that push the envelope that are are funded by the nonprofit apparatus lose their licensing. They lose their funding, and they either end up having to go in a sense underground, or they just dismantle and folks scatter to other more you know so-called more reputable nonprofit organizations. That's the context that produced Barack Obama as a community organizer. And and, and in addition to that, let me say that I think that it's entirely accurate to say that when Obama was engaged in that kind of community organizing, that, you know, th- this, this electoral uh, success that he's had is, is not contradictory to that. In fact, you can see that, that since the 1970s that, that more and more people that are produced by the nonprofit industrial complex are uh, entering the realm of the state, entering the realm of electoral politics and so forth. And, of course, that's not inherently good or bad. It just has to be assessed, you know, on a case-by-case basis. In Obama's case... I think what what we need to do is trace his community organizing to his uh, political work, not just not just in in Chicago, but his political work in uh, places like Harvard Law School. Yeah, it seems like now he's trying to distance himself from from the left, of course, uh, by trying to disown his connection with uh, with uh, Bill Ayers, uh, and so there's all that you know saying that he's not going to have Ayers as his advisor, whereas right. Ayers could have done a lot of work uh, in helping him on educational reform, especially. Well, well, absolutely, and you know, you know what what makes me what makes me really 
laugh in a morbid way about the spectacle of, of Obama and Bill Ayers is that Ayers is one of the few people of that era of radical, you know, revolutionary liberation movements in the U.S. left, first of all, that survived it in the sense that he still is a free person. He's not in prison. He still is in the United States. And not only that, um, he's made his way into, you know, a reputable site, right? He's, he's a professor and he's doing, he's doing decent work in Chicago um, around, around education reform and, and whatnot. What, what is, what is um, morbid about the whole situation is that this is William Ayers. In Chicago, you have one of the most central sites of the Black Panther Party organizing simultaneous with the work that the Weather Underground was doing its work. So you could only imagine what it would be like if, if somebody tried to push Barack Obama to address how it is that so many veterans of the Black Liberation Movement, the Puerto Rican Liberation Movement, the Native American uh, Liberation Movement, the Sovereignty Movement, how many of those veterans are not uh, at the status of being professors at state universities or sitting on boards of educational reform groups, but are, are, are still in, in solitary confinement in prison, are in exile in Cuba, in Canada, in other places, and that kind of thing. So, so what, is, what is somewhat laughable about, how, about this whole scenario is that William Ayers, in a sense, is the most reputable of the people who are, are the remnants of that era of radical and revolutionary liberation movements. There are hundreds, at least, if not thousands of people who are veterans of that same era who would not be considered reputable enough to be in the same vicinity, in the same 10-mile radius as Barack Obama. So one can only imagine what Obama's election represents for those people. There's people who have been in solitary confinement for three decades, uh, some, some of them running close to four decades now, as political prisoners of the U.S. government, who are out of the same uh, realm of revolutionary and radical uh, political work that someone like William Ayers is doing. And there's not been a word breathed about him, not, not a word. It, it, it's all been reduced to the spectacle of William Ayers, who, of course, is... Um, uh, kind of, kind of your representative white revolutionary. So one can only imagine what what would happen if we if we raise the issue of black, brown, and indigenous revolutionaries in this context. Of course, he he says he's the privileged son of a uh, exactly. uh, Commonwealth Edison uh, executive, and that's how he was uh, re- rehabilitated in that's the right. system. He was able to survive. That's right. And, um, so, uh, of course, yeah. And it's just interesting how the media doesn't want any talk of socialists. Uh, anarchists or, or terrorists, of course. Uh, Absolutely, that's any right. Any kind of link to the past where people were trying to seek uh, social change. Uh, that's uh, even Obama's own work as a community organizer is never talked about, really. That's right. And, and, and what, what, what really is gets, gets under my skin about all of this, and, and I say this with all due respect, especially to members of, of, of the, the, old, the, the older generations who, um, in so many different politically symbolic ways, and, and, and these are entirely valid, I think, uh, feel some vindication at this, at this electoral outcome, right? I, 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 can, I can respect it even as I politically disagree with it, right? Because I know that, that, that folks have seen stuff that, that is so um, in, incredibly systemically violent that something like this was probably unimaginable as recently as a couple decades ago, right, if not, if not less. But at the same time, the question that I keep coming back to in relation not to Obama himself, but to the people around me who otherwise call themselves radical progressive on the left, whatever, whatever it might be, who are so willing to leave people for dead in the context of supporting Barack Obama and defending him that, that, that I, I, I mean, I don't think it should be tolerated. I think it is our obligation as people who are interested in life and freedom and in, and in you know, authentic humanity for people who are dehumanized and, 
rendered to social, civil, biological deaths, people who are put in prisons, drop bombs on, or victims of blockades, that we have to start and initiate our politics from the position of protecting people who are left for dead. So this William Ayers thing is the best example in, in some ways, because while we talk so much about him, what we, the, the, the folks we leave for dead are all of, all of the people who were around Bill Ayers who would be called his comrades, people who were his peers, his, his, his people in struggle. And I'm talking... I'm talking as well about other white American, you know, radical political prisoners who, who are still doing their time, people who are still doing their time, not to mention the black, brown, and indigenous people. So the thing that can't be lost around all this is that at the same time that there is this, this, this euphoria, which is not unlike a hangover. I think folks are getting over it now that it's been a couple weeks. Um, what, what, what we have to come back to politically is at the same time that there is this euphoria, this celebration around the election of Barack Obama, you still have a U.S. prison industrial complex that locks up two and a half million people around the world. You have a U.S. imperialism and militarized, you know, proto-genocidal machine, if not a genocidal machine, that, that as, I, as I wrote in my article, is, is going to end up killing well over two million uh, Iraqi, Afghani, uh, Palestinian civilians in, in the span of less than a generation. I mean, these are conservative estimates. These are the things that we, we, we cannot... We cannot concede, and, and those are the things which I think are oftentimes um, rendered at least to the background in the midst of a kind of liberal celebration of, of multiculturalism, which is what, which is, which is what this, this Obama election has become. So once again, I'm most concerned with what it is that happens around Obama and his administration and his election, and much less about what Obama himself and what his, his administration does. I think, I think what he's going to do, what his, his administration does, will be relatively unsurprising. So you're focusing on the the impact on social movements yes. and on people who are active in them. Uh, you know, that book you mentioned, uh, the Insight uh, anthology uh, called uh, The Revolution Will, Will Not Be Funded, uh, came out last year from South End Press. That's right. And uh, you have a chapter in there on the political logic of nonprofit of the nonprofit industrial complex. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's, why, that's why this celebration of Obama as a community organizer really, really um, struck a nerve with me as well. So this the... Are you saying that NGOs and civil society are not the answers? Absolutely not. I mean, they're the answers for some people. They're the answers for people who have access to civil society. They're absolutely not the answers for people who, who are uh, pathologized or, or, in a sense, oppressed by the existence of civil society. People who uh, are, are in prison, people who are labeled undocumented or terrorist, uh, people who are homeless, etc. People who are defined outside civil society can't get access to these institutions. They're the ones who get left for dead by NGO nonprofit organizations, for the most part, or, or at best, NGO nonprofit organizations tend to want to reform those people and enfold them, invite them, assimilate them into civil society. The point, the point is what we need is actually a, a transformation, if not an abolition, of civil society as we understand and as we know it. And that's the political work which I think is, is crucial at this moment. It's, 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 it's otherwise an apparatus, civil society, that, that, will, that will, you know, be the site of implosion. I mean, it, it, it's, that's the logic of it, because it's so, it's so bent on either forcibly in, it, it, assimilating people into it or just, or just forcing people, defining people outside of it. So I, I don't think those things are the answer for people that are interested in social transformation and, and, um, and some form of radical change. Yeah, I think you can see this in the whole debate over gay marriage, is that uh, gay marriage is now normalized as uh, something that everybody wants when actually marriage as an institution Leaves, right. out, leaves out lots of other relationships, leaves out other kind of, uh, you know, I heard that in Boston, in Massachusetts, that uh, employers are now actually canceling uh, health options for right. domestic partners because right. they can say you can get married. Right. The, the New York Times, which owns the Boston Globe, for instance, 
has said that they will not offer health benefits to domestic partners because why don't you guys get married? Exactly. You know, it's like ridiculous. So no, no, you, you've, 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 really, you've really nailed it because um, the, the, gay, the gay marriage issue and its kind of emerging hegemony as um, the label of that which gay liberation, GLBT liberation should struggle for is uh, for so many GLBT activists who, who want a fundamental radical change, not just around the disciplining of sexuality and, and normalized homophobia, but social change, stuff which affects all of us. Um, this this is this has become this gay marriage issue along along hand in hand in a sense with the Obama election. What all what these two things do in their own overlapping ways is they discipline the American left. If if you want to call it an American left at this point, I'm not even sure that that's an appropriate name. But if we call it the American left, what these things do is they discipline it. What they what they have constructed is a set of of askable questions. So now if we're asking questions that push beyond the realm of the institution of marriage, or even beyond the realm realm of uh, liberal Democrat electoral politics, our work is, is, is mul- the, the difficulty of our work is, is multiplied. It, the, the, the kind of, the work of, 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 a, of a radical politics, of pushing a radical critique of existing systems of homophobia, racist state violence, you know, imperialism, etc., is actually being further marginalized by both of these developments. And, and let me say that, that for me, since you raised, raised gay marriage, right, California was strongly an Obama state, as we all know. Uh, California narrowly passed um, uh, the the the, the uh, Proposition Eight, which which uh, as we know uh, rendered rendered gay marriage illegal. What has not been talked about sufficiently, if if at all, is the fact that so many folks overwhelmingly passed Proposition Nine, and the impact of Proposition sure. yeah yeah the impact of Proposition Nine is devastating. What Proposition Nine does under the guise of victims' rights is it is going to ensure that people stay in prison longer, that people, more and more people will die in prison. And this is folks who, um, uh, many, of them, many of them are so-called nonviolent offenders. Many of them are folks who are convicted of something um, and have done more than their minimal time and have, and have you know, maintained so-called good behavior while inside. This, this, what this does is undermines any hope of people actually seeing the light of day inside. And these are the same people uh, who otherwise would represent the, the, the real kind of fulfillment of, of what, uh, what Obama's, Obama's dream tells people it represents, right? This notion of freedom. And, and what Proposition 9 does is it abolishes freedom for so many thousands of people. Um, so, so the fact that those things can coexist is, is deeply, deeply disturbing, and that's what we need to be assessing politically. We need to be taking all that into account. We have to speak to our historical moment and not allow this uh, euphoria of the Obama election to run its course. What we need to do is disrupt it, interrupt it, and speak back to it. That's, that's my position. Yeah, that's. Uh, do you think that's? Uh, I mean, is there anything left of the American left? <laughs> you know, I, I, I try to stay away from sweeping statements. I think that I think that, <laughs> that what you have is 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 a U.S. left that is scattered in different places. And in dialogue with a good friend, with a good friend and mentor of mine, um, what I think I'm most concerned with is less less the question of whether there is an American left. I think once I think such a thing exists, right? What I think what I think does not exist in a coherent fashion is a politics of a radical American left, or a radical U.S., I shouldn't even call it American, a radical U.S.-based left. Um, uh, what, we, what we need to, I think, be engaging is the development of some kind of political analysis or critique with, with a logic to it, which can cohere people who are dissatisfied with the mainstream, uh, if you want to call it the mainstream, of the American left. And I have to say that, that um, 
you know, after after writing writing my polemic and just sending sending it, like I said, to friends and to people I've done political work with, I've gotten um, a lot of feedback from folks who really felt like uh, they were in the same place that I was. I got I got much more feedback along those lines than I thought I would. I thought I was going to get a lot of you know friendly hate mail type stuff, yeah, yeah. Um, which I did not receive. Right, what I got was folks saying, you know, I'm I'm with you on this, and and the problem is that. As much as as much as so many of us are together on this, we don't have a coherent, radical politics that we can articulate that could effectively speak back to this without uh, being individualized. So, so I think what we need to do is is take whatever we can, whatever kind of political material we can, and speak back to the symbolism of Obama. I think the one of the chapters uh, beyond your chapter in this book, uh, the revolution will not be funded, uh, speaks to this whole uh, notion of this neoliberal uh, kind of trend. Uh, the chapter is the NGOization of the Palestinian right. Palestine Liberation Movement. That's right. And so that really speaks to it that uh, if you create, you know, you make something an NGO, then there's normative values that go with that's that. That's right. Uh, and, 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 that and are with, beyond radical. I mean, that restrict you from being absolutely. radical. No, they're anti-radical. They're yeah, explicitly they're, anti-radical. I mean, folks definitely. will tell you in the meetings, they'll say, we cannot do that. We will lose our nonprofit status if we take the position of saying X, Y, or Z. And, and let me let me say, too, as bad, as re, as kind of disciplinary as the nonprofit apparatus is, the the kind of groundswell of support for the you know for Obama during the campaign is is in a sense much worse than that because at the very least NGOs and nonprofits represent some kind of um, marginality or alternative to you know the the establishment the establishment electoral political channels what what. The, the, the negative, I think, the disciplinary effects of the Obama campaign election represent is that so many people who are who are absolutely the products of a history of disenfranchisement and sometimes, you know, systemic racist racist state violence and genocide are actually being um, encouraged to feel empowered by the mainstream political channels, the electoral system, and the electoral apparatus. That's what I think is so profoundly damaging, and 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 it's our fault because we haven't produced a, a viable attractive enough body of knowledge to preempt that stuff, to critically uh, confront that stuff, and to, and to really overturn it. Because um, to the extent that people are, you know, willingly engaged in uh, any, any form of mainstream political channels in, in this sense, right, in the sense of, of, of a celebration or in the sense of an empowerment, I think we, we really need to revisit and reconsider and, and take an inventory about where we're at. I, I, think, that, I think that that's um, the disciplinary effect of what the Obama election has, has represented. And I think we're going to be in it for at least eight years. For sure, and it's an embrace of the two-party system. Absolutely, absolutely, and and Nader didn't help his cause either with with his with his um, right. history of racist, you know, of, of racist uh, at at at, be- at at best, um, you know, uh, racist symp- racist sympathetic uh, statements, you know, with his Uncle Tom, Uncle Sam kind of stuff. So so that that did not help, you know, any idea of of trying to push a third-party system. And he got less uh, votes this time, fewer votes, right? Like, uh, as a percentage, definitely, right. Um, do you think that uh, we can go on for a little bit? Uh, uh, this is KCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine. Uh, you're listening to Subversity Show here with Dan Sung. Uh, we're talking with Dylan Rodriguez, uh, an associate professor of ethnic studies at Riverside. Uh, do you how how are the students at Riverside? You know, Riverside is considered a much more progressive, uh, radical campus than Irvine. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> we seem to be getting a lot of uh, faculty to move there. Uh, from Irvine to uh, Riverside recently. Uh, yeah, the late, the late Lyndon Barrett. The late Lyndon Barrett loved it here. I mean, this, that's the, you know, there's something to what you said. The late Lyndon Barrett loved it here precisely because of what he saw with the students. So, so you're right, actually. 
And Mike Davis just went there. That's right. Mike Davis is here. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're going to get um, Professor Andrea Smith from University of Michigan and Insight. She's going to be here in January. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, people like that can, can begin to uh, engage in the kinds of critical conversations that we need to, to constitute a, 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 viable radical, a viable radical left. I mean, we need to have the debates, we need to have the disagreements, you know, and, and fights. But what we need to do is, is we need to generate a knowledge production. What we need is knowledge. What we need is um, new analytical frameworks, new ways of speaking politically that don't uh, force us back into the same uh, kind of liberal consensus model that, that Obama has been and his, and his people have been so uh, brilliant at mobilizing. So um, I'll say this, though. Uh, UC Riverside campus, uh, among students and faculty, is not profoundly different from probably most other campuses in the UC system in relation to this issue, that is the, the, uh, the Obama election and campaign. I mean, there was unmitigated celebration of Obama's candidacy, um, this is before his election, just of his candidacy throughout the last, you know, 12, 12 to 18 months. And then, and then upon the election, um, you know, there, there, there have been multiple uh, public panels and student organization meetings that have been mobilized around really valorizing the election of Barack Obama. And, and here's why that's important. So much of what I hear in those different settings, including this public forum here at UCR where a number of faculty um, spoke to this, what I hear valorized over and over again with, with, with rare exception is a notion that this moment is the fulfillment of the civil rights dream. And it's absolutely not that. Um, that's that's what that's what is is probably the most heinous distortion of a political history that I've been hearing over the last two weeks. This this election this election of Barack Obama is in no way a fulfillment of the so-called civil rights dream. The so-called civil rights dream was part of it was part of the Black Liberation Movement. What that desired was liberation. What that desired was a radical model of freedom. And in fact. To think about it uh, in those terms is to say that civil rights was really a minor part of the black liberation movement. It's the part which has been most accessible, most celebrated in American national history. But the black liberation movement, as far as an abolitionist movement and a movement for, for sovereignty and, and self-determination and, self, uh, and dignity, um, th- this, is, this is not – this is, in a sense, it's contrary to the black liberation movement's um, you know, most, most, most realistic dreams. And, and even for the, for the liberal civil rights movement, nobody, I didn't, nobody was talking about electing a president at that point. Folks wanted the end of apartheid. You know, and so, and so this, is, this is a distortion that I think we also have to speak back to. Um, the, so-called po- the so-called post-civil rights moment that we're in allows that uh, distortion of history to happen, and we're irresponsible if we let that go. We can't, we can't let that go. This is, this is not the fulfillment of civil rights. The same thing with uh, gay liberation. You mentioned gay liberation, but the media has been calling it gay rights movement, and that's why exactly. they think it's a rights movement. But when we were active in the gay, when I was active in the gay liberation movement, we didn't want gay marriage. We wanted overturned marriage, and we wanted uh, all sorts of relationships uh, to flourish. Exactly. And so th- it's the same same parallels there. Exactly, and and let me say this too. Um, what I think we need to also address, and many people are start are doing this now, right? Radical, radical people of color within within the great GLBT liberation movement have been saying this for years now. But but to the extent that um, you know GLBT politics gets sucked into this kind of rights politics, right. uh, what what it also ignores is the systemic vulnerabilities of 
poor black, brown, and indigenous GLBT people to things like um, uh, racist and homophobic policing, the particular forms of violence that people encounter when they're in prison, the ways in which their own communities will oftentimes pathologize or, or disown them, especially if they're, uh, if they're HIV positive, etc. Those are the issues which are closest to home for so many of the people that I care about. And once again, they're the ones that get left for dead within this conversation around uh, gay marriage and so-called gay rights. Well, I guess we're really out of time now. And so thank you very much, Dylan. Thank you. Uh, Rodriguez from UC Riverside talking about the limits of uh, celebrating Obama's uh, victory. And then the article that I wrote is on racewire.org. I, I, they asked me for permission to print it. It's up there now. Okay, I'll put it on the Subversity website. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Keep in touch. Uh, that was uh, Dylan Rodriguez, Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies. And earlier we talked to two students in the Olive Tree Initiative from UC Irvine, a group of a uh, dozen or more uh, students and some faculty who went to the Middle East, to Israel, and to the occupied territories uh, to see firsthand what it was all about. This is Dan Zhang signing off at this extended version of Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.